friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. All right. Oops. Don't y'all love that graphic? I think it's so cool. Let's pray. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, allow my words to be beautiful, true, right, and honoring of you. Um, and then allow, Lord, my words to not only honor you, but to sharpen, to encourage, to where necessary, admonish, um, but also to teach and communicate above all else how much you love us and how much you want good for us. So help us this morning to receive that. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Uh, this past week, being the 4th of July, my aunt and uncle, who were like surrogate parents to me my, my childhood, I spent every summer in California living with my aunt and uncle, my uncle loves to hike, and so I was thinking about all these hiking trips that we had been on over the years. I mean, I've gotten to see some of the most amazing places in the country, and I was thinking about this one hike we went on, and there's a place in Utah, it's called the Narrows, and you go down, it's Canyoneer hiking, and we were with a new group of people. And I knew, I knew some of the people, but there was a woman about my age, and we both would have been like 24 at the time. And we were hiking along together, and we were just chatting, as you do, get to know each other. Where did you go to school? What do you do? Sort of all these things. And we, we, we kept walking, and then she goes, you know, it's so strange to me that I'm, I'm walking with a minister. Like, I'm, I'm walking with someone who's a religious leader. And I thought, well, okay, I don't, I don't know why that's so strange. I'm from Texas where everybody's a minister. And so... Um, and I asked her why. I said, why is that surprising to you? And she goes, well, because you're clearly smart, you're articulate, and college educated. And I was like, and which part of that doesn't comport with being a Christian? And she goes, well, you know. I was like, you're going to have to say it out loud. <laughs> and she goes, well, I mean, Christians are stupid. I was like, and we're in, a, we're in the canyon, so it reverberates, stupid, stupid. No, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But her, her response to me, what was funny is later in the trip, her father said something very similar to me. And I was like, wow, okay. And so they just kept saying, you know, you're an anomaly, and at some point you're going to wake up and realize you don't belong with stupid people. And I thought, well, you don't know me that well, but um, Christians aren't stupid. But uh, when I got a little bit older, I went to seminary around that time, and there's a guy named Mark Knoll, and he's widely considered one of the best religious historians of American Christianity, especially when looking at evangelicals. And he wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. I was like, well, that's a title, Scandal, Evangelical Mind. Like, let's read it. The very first line says this, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no mind. Mark, are we stupid? Is that what you're saying? Like, what is happening here? Why am I starting by insulting all of us in this room? We've been doing the isms, right? Tim Keller, he left us such a gift before he passed away. He talked about there's these trends that he was seeing at his institute about the decline of the evangelical church in America. And he said we can chalk it up to these isms. And so you heard Martin and I talk about things like moralism, individualism, dualism. And then I, the one I think he made up, enculturationism, which is what we talked about last week. So today, it will be no surprise to you that we're talking about anti-intellectualism. That's one of his isms. That he would say part of the decline in the American church, especially evangelical church, is we have an anti-intellect. We have an anti-scholarship posture that's a really big turnoff to people. And if I'm being honest, of all the isms that we've looked at, this is the one that bums me out the most. Like, it's just, I'm like, man, what a bummer that this woman just inherently thinks I don't have much to offer her intellectually because I believe that a man rose from the dead. 
That's, those should not, that doesn't quite, there's no straight line between those two things. And so Tim Keller, when he talks about anti-intellectualism versus scholarship, he says this is what it looks like in many of our churches. There's a distrust of experts. In fact, we mock experts. Oh, you know, you have a degree. And the person's like, yes, I do know. Uh, Diana is clearly an anti-intellectual because we went out to her ranch this weekend, and she came in the house and said, would you like to come see the painted bunting? And I was like, well, absolutely. What's a painted bunting, though? And it, it's a bird. And so she grabbed a book on birds, and we walked outside. And she goes, I got to find the page. I don't know. And I said to her, it will be under B for bunting, comma, painted. Y'all want to know why? I have a zoology degree. I've read all those books. And Diane goes, I don't think so. I was right. <laughs> Diane is not anti-intellectual. Yeah, she did hate it. She did hate it. There's a distrust of experts. There's a reverse snobism against education and any result of scholarship or research, which is not common sense. So there's this revert, like, I remember being in certain spaces where having a master's of theology, people go, those books might have ruined you. I was like, hmm. There's a distrust of scholarship, a skepticism of science, a refusal to show any other viewpoints, any respect. Not only do we hold them in suspicion, we hold them in derision. And most painfully of all, Tim Keller says, there's a shallow common sense approach to the biblical interpretation that ignores so much of the biblical author's intended meaning, especially in the original context and the scholarship that helps us to discern it. He's saying when there are complex biblical passages, what we see because of anti-intellectualism is people go, hey, whatever just the plain reading of the text is, whatever they say, whatever they say right here, that's what it means. But if you've studied your Bible for any number of times, you realize that's not Always the case. In fact, it's rarely the case. This thing was written more than a few years ago. Tim talks anecdotally. He said, you know, when he was growing up and he really wanted to grow in the Lord. And you know, if you know Tim Keller, you know he's an extremely cerebral man, very brilliant man. And he said he, he realized he was having to constantly read British theologians, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and all of these brilliant minds because there wasn't the American equivalent for him. And then he talks about theological understanding among evangelicals is very low and it's trending downward. We have all this data. I could, I could bore you with it. This anti-intellectualism means that people kind of look at the church and say, hey, you're ignoring good scholarship. You're ignoring nuance in the scriptures. You're ignoring experts. And it's turning people away from the church. So do I ultimately care that people think we're stupid? No. I mean, I do. I do care if people think I'm stupid. I'm just going to clear that air right now. But I don't care if they think you're stupid. That's not what this morning is about. My ultimate concern and why we're talking about anti-intellectualism and why I think that's a problem is because we're told by all the gospel writers that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Paul tells us when he's talking to the Romans who have a very messed up worldview, he says to them, you are meant to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the scriptures call us to be good citizens who care about the flourishing of the city, but when we hold in suspicion or ridicule good science and good social science, we inevitably become bad neighbors. So I hope right now, maybe you're thinking, really? I came here on Sunday morning, and you're asking me to just become a nerd? To read a book? Which I am calling you to read a book. Do y'all know that the top 100 Christian books that come out every year, there's top 100, usually about 20 of them are coloring books. About 20 of them are different iterations of Jesus Calling. 
that leaves 60 other books, and most of them would not be worth your time. So yes, I am calling you to read books, but that's not what this is ultimately about. I'm calling us to pursue knowledge and truth because the pursuit of truth is nothing short of the pursuit of God himself. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then pursuing biblical truth and all truth is ultimately running toward God. If you pursue beauty, if you chase after beauty and you really go all the way to its origin, you will be standing face to face with God. If you pursue goodness and you go all the way to its origin, you will be standing face to face with God. He is the source of all beauty, all goodness, and all truth. So when you pursue truth, it's not so that some woman in Utah will think Christians are smart. We pursue truth because in that pursuit, we will encounter the living God and what he wants for us and from us in this life. So we're going to talk about how we can do that. And I thought I would use one of my favorite books by a man named Alan Jacobs to be our guide. Alan Jacobs wrote a book called How to Think. And in that book, it's really a book about how do you change your mind about something big. He goes, not, you know, not change your mind about, you know, like, which toothpaste you're going to use. Like, how do you change your mind to go from Democrats to Republicans? How do you change your mind to go from one view of baptism to another? How do you change your mind on some major thing that your, your agreement with this idea also will change the community you belong to? And in his book, he says, if you're going to truly change your mind about something big in life, if you're going to think well about any topic, you have to have three things, curiosity, humility, and courage. Curiosity, humility, and courage. Curiosity says I'm willing to read, consider, ponder things that I currently disagree with, voices I don't normally follow, and really search. I'm not reading this so that I can tear it apart. I'm reading this because I believe that I should be curious about wherever truth might be found. Humility says I don't know it all. I could be wrong. And I don't think that I am, but because I'm a human and because I might be wrong, I'm willing to allow the truth to bear upon me, whatever that truth may be. And courage, which is the hardest one, I believe, says I'm willing to pursue this truth despite what it will cost me. And it will cost you. And we'll talk about that. Curiosity, humility, and courage. So let's look at curiosity first and where we can see curiosity in the biblical text and the good that comes of it. Acts 17, 10 through 15. Paul and his missionary crew, they've just been in Thessalonica, and it's a port city, and they are very upset with them. They've run them out of town. They are screaming things at them, and they are accusing them of turning the whole world upside down. So they move on, and they get to a place where the Bereans are, and this is what it says. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. And the brothers and the sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed there. And those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, then they departed. I love the Bereans. If there was a model of curiosity in the scriptures, this is it. Paul comes from Thessalonica and he's been causing a ruckus everywhere he goes. 
Everywhere Paul goes, he's either getting beaten or run out of town or people are losing their minds. And when he comes to them, he is teaching a completely different worldview than anything that they have ever heard. First century Greeks could never imagine that a poor Jewish man would die and rise again and change the whole world and to become monotheistic and believe in this triune God. It's a completely different worldview. Paul has a new voice, he has new ideas, and he has ideas and beliefs that are not compliant with your old way of life. No wonder the Thessalonians don't like him. What happens when somebody shows up in your town and goes, the entire way you're living is garbage. Man, or did you do a better way? And the Thessalonians are more like most of us. Kevin Rowe, he's a, a brilliant scholar, he wrote a book called World Upside Down, and he used that phrase, the Thessalonian Jews, that all of the people that interact with Paul and all of his missionary journeys, they accuse him of like, you're turning the entire world upside down. But what Kevin notices is every time Paul stands in front of a Roman magistrate, though, the magistrate's like, ah, uh, they're really not doing anything but sharing ideas. The Thessalonians are like, no, they're, they're absolutely turning the world upside down. They're like, okay, do they have weapons? Are, are they storming the castle? Like, what do you mean they're turning? Like, we're Romans. We just crucify people for sport. What are they doing to actually upset the social fabric and the way we do things? And they're like, well, he, he's talking. They're like, well, he's allowed to do that. Can't you just ignore him? And they're like, no, we need to beat him. The Thessalonians make sense. It's the Bereans that really stand out. The Thessalonians saying, you're turning the world upside down by talking about ideas that make us uncomfortable. And the Bereans are called more noble than the Thessalonians because of their curiosity, because of their willingness to search the scriptures. And it says that they not only searched them, they searched them daily, vigorously, and with eagerness. And what was the reward for their curiosity? For many of them, it was eternal life. Their curiosity was nothing short of entrance into eternal life. Oh, that we would be more like the Bereans and less like the Thessalonians. One of the hardest parts of my job as a resident theologian, as a Bible teacher, as someone who tries to take really complex biblical and theological ideas and break them down and make them accessible, which is what I believe that is the role that God has given me in my life, both with you guys and in the broader church. The hardest context for me is when I'm in conservative evangelical spaces because the more complex the idea, the more difficult it would be for me to kind of explain how we get to this conclusion. I know that somebody's going to come to me and go, but that's just not what my Bible says. That's not the plain reading of the text. Because the curiosity is missing. Just, I'm like, just go with me on the journey. There will be at least three jokes in 30 minutes. You may not agree in the end, but just, just walk with me. And in the end, you can reject it, but just give me a chance. The anti-intellectualism that plagues much of evangelicalism means that when a hard passage of the Bible requires nuance and context, then I know my work is cut out for me. And I'm lying to you if I said that hasn't at times swayed my desire to pick easier passages when I go visit churches. I'm thinking, this is a really good passage, but I'm going to have to explain what was happening in this town, and I don't, uh, uh, uh. A woman I deeply admire named Sandy Glon. She uh, is one of the most influential people in my theological journey. She has spent the last 25 years studying Artemis. And Artemis was a goddess in Ephesus and had a major impact on the way the Ephesians worshipped. 
Sandy has spent 25 years, she has traveled the world studying this topic. She is without a doubt right now the world's leading scholar on Artemis. And the book that she finally put out, she finally got this thing after 25 years of study. It's not, this is an advanced copy. Look at how elite I am. This is an advanced copy and I read it in one day. I was like, Sandy, this has massive implications for the way that we read Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Acts. Like, like this book is unbelievable, and it is so significant to help us better understand God's word. 25 years of research and faithfulness, and I promise you that because this book will force some people to reconsider those really difficult, nuanced passages in 1 Timothy, things like, hey, you'll be saved through childbearing or what you do with your hair and all of that. Don't permit a woman to teach. Because of the nuance that it will require, there will be people who will look at 25 years of faithful scholarship and go, nah, no. But you know what ultimately impacts? It's not the person that's like, nah, nah, and they throw it away. It's the people around them in the church who have been so unsettled by that verse that says women are saved through childbearing. Because I promise you, there are women in our churches who view that scripture and go, does this mean because I have not had kids that I am not going to be saved? And Sandy is making a resounding no and saying, if you just understood Artemis, it would help you understand Timothy. 25 years of scholarship, dedication. She brings her receipts in this book. It's groundbreaking stuff. And someone will say, well, I know what my Bible says. Plain reading of the text. And it breaks my heart. That people would say, I don't need this fancy scholarship to understand my Bible. And then we wonder why people are turning away from the church. Because they have those big questions that Sandy's trying to answer. But if she's met with ridicule, how much more so will someone who doesn't have 25 years of scholarship be met with that same ridicule? What's my point about curiosity? Do I want you to read more books? Yes, of course I do. I'm a resident theologian. I talk to you all about books all the time. Come to my house, you can just take one off my bookshelves. Do I want people to be curious and to be rewarded for that? Yes, of course I do. But more than that, what I want, and it's the same thing that Dr. Gawne told me on Friday that she wanted, is I want people to be curious because when you're curious and you study the scriptures more faithfully, what you actually encounter is a more faithful picture of who our God is. I don't want you to be curious so you will win some Bible trivia contest. I don't want you to be curious so people will go, oh, St. Jude, that's an intellectual church. Big theological chops there. No, no, I want you to be curious because when you search the scriptures, the promise is that in them you will find God. Not answers, God. And there is no small thing about that pursuit of curiosity. Sandy has written a gift to us as the church. Would we be curious people who would receive that as gift and be modeled and shaped by the Bereans and people like Sandy so that when we press into the scriptures, our curiosity is rewarded with a more faithful picture of who God is? Curiosity. The second thing, though, that we'll need is not just curiosity, but we will need humility as we search. In Acts 18, 24 to 28, we see a picture of a really humble man. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian. Alexandrian, by the way, is where all the intellectuals come from. It's where you go to learn rhetoric. It's where you, all the smart, it's like saying you're from Harvard. Or what, what's the equivalent? Like Samford, the Harvard of the South. Or what are we talking about here? Whatever the place is that America produces intellectuals, that is Alexandria. 
And he was an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures, and he arrives in Ephesus. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. So he, he was just missing a little bit of information. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wanted to cross over to, to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. I love this. Apollos would be the man. He would be eloquent, highly skilled rhetorician. That's a skill that they would have learned back then. But he's just a little off. You know about John's baptism, but you don't know the full story about baptism. So Priscilla and Aquila, and by the way, the fact that she's listed first does matter. He's being corrected by a woman. And they're more mature in their understanding of baptism. And they grab him and say, hey, kid, we like what you're doing here. All this is really good. May we just tweak some things. And what does Apollos do? What a beautiful picture of humility. And look at the faithfulness of his ministry afterwards, right? He doesn't have his ball. He doesn't take his ball and go home. His ego's not hurt. Like, he's not like, ugh. And he just walks away. Instead, he receives that correction. And he goes on and continues to vigorously be a missionary for Christ. And I think about, like, there are so many stories in the Bible that I imagine when we get to heaven and meet the real-life people, they're like, I did one thing wrong. And now it's in your Bible, and y'all have this completely wrong picture of who I am. Like, we, we tell stories all the time, and they're like, it was one time. And you're like, well, like, like I think Thomas gets such a bad rap. They're like, oh, doubting Thomas. I'm like, oh, because we would all believe a dead man came back to life. Okay. He just asked to see some hands here. So if I'm Apollos, I'm like, really, Luke? You just went ahead and put that in there? You just slid that in? It doesn't really move the plot along, Luke. I don't really know why that's in the story. And if I'm being honest, I would rather be Priscilla in this story, not Apollos. Like, if I got to heaven, I'd be like, oh, kind of wish that wasn't the part that you chose to record for all of eternity, Luke. Not one jot and tittle will disappear, but whatever, Luke. I'd rather be Priscilla. But why? Why is it not the normative posture for Christians to say, in light of Genesis 3, when everything broke, including our minds, in light of the fact that I'm just human, and there's human frailty, and in light of the fact of just how learning works in general, none of us are pre-programmed with all the information that we need. Why do we not go around assuming we could be wrong? And that correction is gift. And then continue on more fervently. Like, why is that not the model for humility? Why is it we don't want to be questioned? Why, why is it we push away? Why is it we delete the comment under Twitter when it questions us publicly about something? Right? If you are following a pastor or a theologian online who has never changed their mind on anything, you're not following a pastor or a theologian. You're either following a liar or a narcissist and stop following them. Theology demands that you change your mind at some point. And humility says, look, I, of course, would rather be right. Of course I would. But it's more important to me that my allegiance to Jesus and my allegiance to the truth be a higher value in my life than saving face. I just want to be sure that I get it right in the end. I won't get everything right in the beginning. But my pursuit of Christ and my pursuit of him is paramount to me just getting it right the first time. And when correction comes from a friend, when correction comes from someone who loves me, when correction comes from a faithful Jesus follower, that's a gift. And the humble can receive that as gift. 
So Christians, we should be the first to admit when we don't know something or when we've changed our mind about something. Like pastors and theologians and Christians should encourage people to go to therapy because we don't know. I had a 120-hour degree on my THM. Two of them were counseling, and most of that class was on preparing and rich, which is allowing me to help you get married, something I've never done. If you like your premarital counseling here, I got you. I am certified in it. That's a joke. I would tell you, ask Mart, right? But we should be the first to say go to therapy. They're trauma-informed and wise, amazing people who did schooling I didn't do. We should encourage people to read from different theological backgrounds, even if it's going to mean disagreeing with me because I'm not insecure about that. And frankly, I'm not an expert in that. That, that is more developed theologically in that tradition than in mine. So please go read the best of the best. We should be willing to listen to leading scientists, doctors, philosophers, because we are not experts in that. Now, I realize that requires a caveat. We are in an age in a stage with social media and information, it is difficult to find experts. I also know that. But in theory, what I'm really calling for is not so much that you're good at finding the sources, but that you're humble enough to say, I'm not the source. We should be able to say, wow, I changed my mind, and this person graciously helped me to change my mind. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. And we should be able to do that even when we really don't want that person to be right. You think Diane wanted me to be right about the painted bunting? Sometimes because of a different camp that person belongs to or a different background or whatever, we just don't want them to be right. So even though they're right, we won't receive that correction. We won't receive that information because it's more about our disdain for them rather than our desire to honor truth as the embodied person of Jesus. And yet humble people can say, yeah, honestly, that person, if I'm being honest, I wish they weren't right, but they were. And I had to change my mind. And I received that as a gift from the Lord. The world does hubris just fine. <laughs> the world does not need help with hubris. It does not need help with a bunch of experts online. Like, the world needs no help with that. We have all seen people who have been bested and shown that they're wrong, and they just double down. We've all seen people who plug their ears and close their eyes and just scream into the void despite all the evidence presented to them that says you're wrong. So what if we were more like Apollos? If the world is like that, what if the church was marked by thoughtful, humble people who freely admit when they don't know something, they don't hold experts in suspicion, they don't hold science and social science in suspicion, they're able to articulate, you know, I once thought this, but I don't anymore. I'm not really sure about that. I could be right, I could be wrong. If you find out I'm wrong, would you let me know? What if the church was marked by people like Apollos who received correction as gift, not because we're so grateful that someone corrected us, but because we're grateful that what we're saying about the Lord and his world and his people is now more accurate because we are pursuing that because that's the kind of people he wants us to be. If God is the God of truth, he wants us to be the kind of people who traffic in the truth. Humility looks good on everyone. And how would it impact the world who is sick of boasting, sick of arrogance, they're sick of shouting down correction and the exchange of ideas. Instead, found a church, found a place, full of people who have humbly changed course when necessary, listened to other voices, and recognized we need each other to pursue truth more faithfully. Maybe they wouldn't walk away if they found that. We need curiosity, we need humility, and we need courage. Acts 19, 21 to 41 is a really wild story. If you don't think Artemis was a big deal in the ancient world, then just listen to this story. 
Paul is creating riots everywhere he goes. And so after these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia on to Jerusalem. And after I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. And after sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way, which is what they were calling Christianity then. For a person named Demetrius, he was a silversmith who made many shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. And when he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see in here not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia and the world worships. By the way, it came to ruin. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they all rushed together into the amphitheater, as one does, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. And although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into there. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know that, why they had even come together. That's not good. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand. Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours of just screaming this. When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you keep calm and don't do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with them have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what has happened today since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Courage. I have always said theology is inherently risky. And the reason why is you will eventually find out you disagree with your grandma or a youth pastor or the person who married you or the one who you married, the person who led you to Christ, a beloved aunt and uncle, Find out you disagree with Martin and I. And it will require, at times, hopefully, your grandma, your pastors, all these people love you enough to say, hey, we disagree on this big thing, but we can still be united. But if, if you've been following the church at all, oftentimes when you disagree or change your mind on something, it means you lose friends. It means you lose associates. For many people, I talk to so many people that lost their church because they no longer believe one big thing. And their church told him, you're no longer welcomed here. So this story of Paul, he's in Ephesus, and, you know, you start messing with somebody's purse, and they get a little upset. And so they're like, hey, they're going to cause the decline of Artemis. And so all these people just gather in the amphitheater, and they're all screaming. I just want to know the person who's like, I don't know why we're here, but I'm just screaming things out. Like, I just want to know what they were like. Like, I would just be yelling boomer sooner over and over again until I heard someone reply. And I'd be like, that's my person. What are we doing here? But they're just screaming. And so obviously Paul needs courage, but that's not the person I want you to think about. Instead, I want you to think about the young girl who had been living in Ephesus. 
who is devoted to Artemis. Artemis is the goddess of midwifery. She was a virgin. She wore short clothes, and she was an archer. So this girl probably dressed like Artemis. She would have stayed single because of Artemis. She probably hunted because of Artemis, and she would have shown her opulence and wealth on her body because of Artemis. But somehow, she stumbled upon the hall of Tyrannus one day, and Paul starts talking about a God who's better than Artemis. A God she doesn't have to fear, a God that loves her, a God that died for her, a God who cares for her, a God who wants her in relationship, something greater than she could ever fathom. And so she falls on her knees one day and says, I love the Lord, the one true God, not the goddess of Artemis anymore. I love Jesus Christ. And then her whole town loses their ever-loving minds. And Paul's going to leave. Tim's going to leave. He's going to come back, but... Erastus is going to leave, Alexander's going to leave, and she's standing in the amphitheater, and she has just given her life to Christ, and she hears all her neighbors screaming, great is Artemis. What's she going to do? Alan Jacobs, in his book, How to Think, says, courage is the hardest and most difficult hurdle. People can be curious, people can be humble, and he says, even if they grow convinced, he interviewed so many people, they will grow convinced through their study that the group they currently belong to is wrong. But when the last step of courage comes, they realize the cost to disagree is too high. I'll lose my friends, I'll lose my family, I'll lose my way of life, I'll lose my church, and so I know that it's wrong, but I'm gonna stay wrong because I don't wanna lose what I have. And you can imagine that young girl in Ephesus that day is going, the cost is so great. The cost is so great. Great, and yet there's nothing short of courage that's required of us as a church to tell the truth and to hold on to the truth. Recently, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, they had a big dust up because Rick Warren over at Saddleback, when he retired, they named two people to replace him, and one was a woman. And they gave her the title of pastor, which is a no-no in the SBC. And Rick did it on purpose, and he wanted to force the issue. So they had their big national gathering, and unsurprisingly, it was like an 89% vote. They, they kicked Saddleback out, and, and they kicked out multiple churches where women had been pastoring. One church, a woman had been the pastor for 33 years, faithfully. And they said, well, you're out. You know what I bet happened the next Sunday? I bet she went right back in that pulpit and just kept on going. But, but Rick made a public statement apologizing to women. He said, look, I owe women an apology. And he says, look, I did not study what 1 Timothy 2 says about I do not permit a woman to teach. It goes, it's not that I didn't have the resources to study it. It's not that I wasn't curious about it. It's not that it's because I didn't know how to study it. Of course, I had been taught. I had all the resources. I knew how to find the books. There were people. I knew who to talk to. I knew what I could have done to really study this issue. The reason I did not study this issue until now is because I knew if I changed my mind, I would have to leave my church. It wasn't worth it to me. And then he said, and that's a shame on me. And he apologized to women. And I could be cynical and say, oh, it's, you're retiring. Thanks a lot. For waiting until the very end. I could be saying, I'm not though. I'm not. Because I'm so glad he said the thing out loud that many of us think. He's not alone in that. Martin and I have been in situations where we know if we were to say out loud what it is we really believe about a passage or a part of life or whatever, we know that suddenly there's tension and we know there are times that we go, oh, I'm just kind of going to go this way. We've, We've all been there. And yet, Rick gives us an example of what it means to ultimately be faithful to Jesus. It took him a while, 30 years, but he got there, and I want to celebrate that. 
And it's not because he landed on a side I agree on. That's not my point. It's that he was able to say, I don't want to be scared of where the truth takes me because my allegiance to the truth is greater than the associations I belong to. I believe one of the main drivers of anti-intellectualism in the church is this last point. I think we can be curious and humble people, but I think what happens in many of our churches, especially evangelical churches, is if you change your mind on too big of an issue, you are now considered unfaithful and unwelcomed in these places. And you know, it wasn't Rick that was hurt the most. It it was the women in his church who had these undeniable gifts from God and were told they had no place to, to use them. This is why people are leaving the church. And it's not just on the role of women. You can name any topic. It takes so much courage to become a Christian. You think of that girl in Ephesus and the courage it would take for her to go, I'm still going to walk with Jesus in this town obsessed with Artemisian worship. And it's going to cost me friends. And it might cost me family. And it might cost me a lot. But what I gain in Christ and what I gain in that church, I, I am sold out to him. It is a lot of courage to become a Christian. Why do we make it so stinking hard, though, to just be Christians that disagree on issues. It shouldn't take that much courage to be a Christian who changes their mind on a doctrinal issue that's not essential and then still be welcomed in the church. What if the church was a place where people could disagree and change their minds and still be welcomed with great love and great care? Hey, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. You want to get lunch? Why is that so hard for us? Curiosity, humility, and courage is what is required if we're going to be not an anti-intellectual church, but a church that says we're going to pursue the Lord our God with our whole self, including our minds. Cards on the table. I'm a huge nerd. You guys know I'm pursuing a doctorate of ministry, and my focus of study so far is the reading habits of the early church in the first century. I know you guys are fascinated. I'll give you the books. So when people cry out, though, to me, oh, intellectualism is just elitist. I'm like, "Mm, you haven't been reading about the first century church. They studied their Bibles because they knew that studying their Bible was an access to God. And when people came into the early church and they were illiterate, you know what they did? They taught them literacy so that they could read the Bible. Justin Martyr says they would often read the Bible so long until people were falling asleep. And then they'd get up the next day and they would do it again. Why? Is it just because the first century people were nerds? Of course not. It's because they knew that in order to be effective in their mission, they would not only need to be transformed body and soul, but also mind by the gospel. And they would have to have the intellectual chops to argue, reason, plead, and compel anyone who would listen to their quite unbelievable story of a poor Jewish man who grew up and he was born in Nazareth and he died. He took on the sins of the world and he rose again. And you're trying to tell that to people who live in Ephesus, who have unbelievable access to education. The early church is saying, we want them in the kingdom. So we're going to study, and we're going to plead, and we're going to talk, and we're going to come before them, and we're going to be curious and humble and courageous as we do it. I want us to look more like the first century church in that way. Not, again, so people go, oh, St. Jude's so intellectual. No, I, I mean, of course I want that. But I want that because I want this to be a place where people recognize the pursuit of truth leads us to God himself. And we think that's a worthy endeavor. And so if you come in here and you have different ideas, if you're not sure about things, if you find yourself saying, I don't know a lot, or you're just wavering in beliefs, I hope and pray that in St. Jude, you will find a place to work that stuff out. And you will be met 
with great love and encouragement to continue in your pursuit of that truth. Not to look away, but to continue in it, even if it means that at the end of it, your realization means you can no longer be a part of this church. We will help you find your next church. Because God and his kingdom is greater than St. Jude. And the pursuit of truth is worthy every time because when you pursue that, you will find God. Let's think well about the Lord because he's worthy of nothing less and so are the people that we want to know him. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And when you created humanity in your image, you gave us minds and intellect. You gave us the ability to reason and to think and it sets us apart from your created kingdom in so many ways. And we're naive to the effects of the fall. We're naive to our arrogance. But we want to be like you, Jesus. Who says you grow in stature and wisdom. We want to be like you, Jesus, where we would pursue truth. That we would be humble people who search the scriptures because in them we find you. So would you reward our curiosity? Would you make us humble? And would you give us the courage to grasp a hold of you and to hold on? and to help us to love you with our heart, souls, mind, and strength. Bless my friends this morning in that endeavor. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.